This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This week on RVER, sponsored by Progressive Insurance. Hey, Chief, we got a damaged RV on its way to the OR. Well, that sounds like a job for the new head of RV surgery. <laughs> Wait, are you promoting me? Congrats, Martinez. Doctor, that RV's flatlining. Well, that sounds like a job for the new head of nursing. So you're just promoting everyone now? Yeah, kind of looks that way, doesn't it? When your RV really needs saving, Progressive has you covered. See if you could save with a leader in RV insurance. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Covered subject to policy terms. Hi, this is Steve Albini. And you're listening to Whatever Nevermind. Talking to let me welcome to the program Steve Albini. I got your name. That's the proper pronunciation for your last name, Albini. Yep. Uh, of course, from Big Black, owner of uh, Electrical Audio Studios in Chicago, and uh, produ- well, do you do you still not like the term producer? Is that that accurate? Uh, well, I mean, it's just it doesn't accurately describe what I do. That's all. It's not a big deal. Okay. Uh, I mean, people use all kinds of terms for all kinds of things. My preference would be to be called an engineer just because that's you know technically more accurate but it's not a big deal okay well fair enough uh producer engineer uh steve uh, lb <laughs> um today we're going to talk a little bit about nirvana in in your work with the, their album in utero um but uh before we get into that a little bit uh can you just uh give me just a little bit about yourself um what drew you into music i guess initially I'm, i don't know how far back you want to go or, or whatever direction you want to take where you you decided that that was kind of going to be your path when you're a teenager you're interested in a lot of different things and you never really know what you're what which of those you know you don't you don't know which of those is going to be your life mm-hmm. right um but uh music spoke to me kind of especially and when I got to college and I got uh, involved in the music scene here in Chicago, um, it sort of shaped a lot of my thinking, and I started to adapt more and more of my life to suit my interest in music. Like, um, my, I, I had a job, but I always, I was always careful to make sure that my job provided me enough free time that I could work on music and my free time, and that I could take vacations as needed to go on tour and uh, things like that. And that was just part of part and parcel of being in a band. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you're in a band, you're, you know, your social circle and your peer group is all other musicians and other people in bands. And so all the people that I hung out with were in bands and um, my band wanted to make recordings of itself uh, for posterity, you know, for posterity or whatever. Uh, so I, 
got charged with making the recordings of my own band. And once I did that, then I had a minimal skill set that would be useful to my friends, who were also <laughs> all in bands. And so then I started recording all of my friends' bands. And then the more I did that, the more I sort of <clears throat> gravitated toward that as a sideline or as a semi-professional, serious pastime. Well, now... And eventually, and eventually it became a profession. Going back to when you first started recording, then what, what what kind of setup were you using? Like, how would you actually physically record these things? Was, did you have like a Tascam four track, or was it more in in the very beginning? I would uh, rent a four track reel to reel recorder. Uh, most music shops or most large music shops uh, in the day had a little setup that they would rent out to people to record demos in their rehearsal rooms. It would be a reel to reel tape machine, a small mixer some microphones, you know, and you could rent that little package okay. for 50 bucks for the weekend or whatever. And then, um, so then, you know, that's, that was sort of routine. I would do that. Uh, I would, I would rent that equipment. Like when I was a teenager in Montana, before I moved to Chicago, the local guitar shop had a little package like that, that they would rent out. And then there was, when I got to Chicago, there were several music shops in Chicago that would rent a similar package for you. Uh, and then, um, over time, I started to acquire equipment of my own. Uh, my band for our, the band I was in at the time, Big Black, um, we're going to do a recording session for what constituted our last album. And we realized that we could either spend a couple thousand dollars in the studio, or we could spend that couple thousand dollars buying some recording equipment, and then we would have it sort of forever. And if we did that, then... Um, uh, then we wouldn't have to spend any more money ever again, you know? <laughs> it's kind of amazing uh, uh, larger bands with much more money don't come to that conclusion at some point. Some well, do. At the, well, currently, I mean, now in the digital era, mm. it, you know, it, getting recording equipment is a lot e easier because, you know, there, um, relatively good recording equipment is available in, you know, sort of commercial level or consumer level music stores or online or whatever. And then, you know, the software that people use to record is pretty ubiquitous. So um, now it's much easier. But at the time you had to, you know, there was a little bit of, you had to have a little bit of savvy and you had to have a little bit of patience to rig everything up. But, it, you know, it was by no means difficult. Otherwise I, I, I wouldn't <laughs> have done it. I mean, I don't do anything hard. <laughs> Well, honestly, the 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 process of of uh, you know learning how to actually properly function a reel to reel, and then getting it to a format that you can pass around cassette or you know I don't know how quickly in your in your timeline you would have been doing anything on vinyl, but that's there's something there. Yeah, I mean the ambition was always to make a record at the time. Uh, making records was pretty rare. You know, it was an expensive enterprise to make to press up a record, and then you would. You know, then you had no mm -hmm. promise that anyone would ever hear it. You know, <laughs> no, um, there was no, you know, there was there was no easy distribution means. You had to sort of uh, finagle distribution for the records in the same way that you would finagle gigs if if you were an unknown band. You had to talk record stores into taking them. Some record stores would take them on consignment um, after you'd sold a few, or if you'd gotten some reviews or some. Uh, some attention in the underground press, then you know, then you could sell some to distributors or 
distant record stores by, you know, shipping them independently. But it was it was by no means easy to sell records, uh, and so you had to invest all this money up front, uh, and you know, with no real no promise of getting it back. You had to you know you had right. to be diligent over the course of several years to to break even. Now um, I'm speaking to you from uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. Now, the big, big black, you know, obviously kind of broke out of Chicago there. Did you, and around the same time that, like, acts like Husker Du and The Replacements, did you ever do anything with those guys as far as, like, shows, anything of that nature? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, those were sort of peer bands of ours. So, like, you, um, Husker Du, for example, uh, Grant Hart from Husker Du uh, was booking shows in uh, the Twin Cities in the 80s, and uh, he helped set up a, a show, one of the very first shows that my band played there, and you know he had us crash at his place. Like he he was renting this big church. Um, I want to say it was in St. Paul that he was using as a crash pad for him and his, all of his friends, and his bands would practice there and that sort of thing. Um, and so you know we came up there to play, and we crashed at his place, and uh, he sort of hosted us there, and we became friends with a number of bands in the Twin Cities that. A lot of the bands that were associated with um, Husker Du, band, they had a record label, and, and they were putting bands out on their label, um, bands like Man-Sized Action and Rifle Sport, and all of those bands were friends of ours, and, and we developed a relationship with them where we would host them in Chicago, and they would host us in Minneapolis, and, and likewise. Uh-huh. And then eventually, um, one of those bands, uh, Rifle Sport, um, I got involved in a in a um, uh, a cooperative record label or, or a uh, uh, a record label in Chicago that was a sect- that that was a a collective of of small bands in Chicago called Ruthless Records and eventually oh, okay. um, Rifle Sport from Minneapolis started putting records out their records out on the Ruthless label and then when the Ruthless label dissolved in Chicago. Um, Christopher Johnson, who was the vocalist of Rifle Sport, he took that over and he started releasing Rifle Sports records from Minneapolis on the Ruthless label. So there's quite a strong, there there was always quite a strong sort of fraternal relationship between bands in Chicago and bands in Minneapolis. And and we're going back to a time when vinyl still had a pretty big stronghold. Were there a lot of uh, manufacturing plants that were easy to find? Um, it's a little different now, you know, you know but um, I'm, I'm talking mainly Chicago, Twin Cities, the bigger city, you know, the bigger metropolitans around the area here in the Midwest. Um, I mean, most 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 recording studios would have a line on a place that would that you could use to independently press your records. Okay. Um, uh, so if you were recording at a proper recording studio, they could give you an introduction to a pressing plant or a mastering studio that could then give you an introduction to them pressing plant that sort of thing now it's dead easy to find on you know <laughs> you can you can find almost anything with a simple internet search you can you can find people who will help you press any number of records from a few hundred to tens of thousands so but at the time it did require a little bit of detective detective work and everybody had their own recipe like oh yeah this this place is great but they charge too much for their labels so you get your labels printed at this at a local place and ship them there or oh yeah this this place their quality isn't that great but um if you want small quantities they're the cheapest or 
you know, like so through word of mouth, you would you would learn the sort of uh, the tricks of the trade of getting a record released in a sort of an economical fashion. What about like uh, like sonically? How important was like what you recorded to come across on? Because I know did, uh, nowadays like vinyl mastering is is a term that gets tossed around a lot. Um, did, w- you know, you had a very DIY ethos, obviously, as most mm-hmm. punk bands at that time. Uh, was <laughs> was there ever like a cases where you just got them like this sounds like shit and you want to send it back to the? Or did they always kind of come through? I guess I'm I'm not sure. Well, I mean. Right. Beggars can't be choosers, you know. So we're <laughs> we're talking about bands that were doing relatively small pressings uh, on extremely limited budgets. So you you didn't really have the luxury of choice. You would find a place that would be willing to do, make your records for you, and then you would okay. would send the record, send the tapes off, and hope for the best. So you know, independent bands and independent labels were not well served during that era. Um, Label independent labels that survived and and developed a, a catalog of materials. I'm thinking of say Touch and Go out of um, Detroit, or uh, and they eventually moved to Chicago, uh, or Wax Tracks here in Chicago, for example, where you'd have um, a number of releases uh, where you know you would be a repeat customer. Then the everyone would have uh, a reason to to treat you better. Like the distribution company would then have a reason to pay you if they knew that there were going to be multiple releases on your label that they would want in their inventory or the pressing plant, you know, would want to give you good service if they knew that you can, you know, you had a number of titles coming out every year, that sort of thing. That was something that was aspired to by all of the independent labels, but it was achieved by a very small number of them. That, that stuff always fascinates me. I just, uh, I mean, because, you know, I, I kind of, I'm a little younger than you, but I kind of came of age around that time. I was 13, 14 in the early 80s there. Um, and, you know, I got into the the, uh, the punk rock music that I could find. I was also in a small town, so it was a bit of a struggle there. Um, but you, you touched on a little bit about how much easier it is to, like, you know, just set up a, a recording studio, basically, I well, I'm in my basement in my house um, I, for about, I think I spent about maybe $2,000 and everything I got down here as far as the recording and, and microphones and things. Um, the music industry in general, though, has changed quite a bit. What are your thoughts on that? Because you basically have seen, basically worked through quite a bit. I mean, what do you think of the well, way? Well, in, in the, 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 the part of the music industry that I worked in, the underground, the independent labels and the punk bands and the one-off record pressings and things like that like that that was all very small scale stuff that was sort of a hobbyist thing you know like uh bands would invest money in making a record not because it was a business enterprise but because they hoped that that would allow them to sustain their band and that that hope they hoped that it would be a self-sustaining thing right mm-hmm. um that's a completely different motivation from the professional mainstream music business that was exploiting an audience and trying to sell, you know, huge quantities of records. That's a good point. Yeah, as an industrial enterprise, you know. So they're they're two completely different things. Um that big monolithic music industry no longer exists, or at least it no longer exists in the sense that it's not selling records anymore. So now the the records that are being sold, if you go to a record shop now and look at their new releases, the majority of their new releases will be from small independent labels that have persevered in pressing records for a discriminating audience that wants to buy physical media, right? 
um, the what would be the equivalent of the old big mainstream record labels are now sort of artist management enterprises where they have uh, where they're managing all facets of an artist's career, and they'll you know they will they will handle their online and television presence, their uh, video, their uh, you know their endorsements with. Uh, clothing companies or their uh, or their association affiliation with, with different products or their uh, their music being used in tandem with uh you know a, a big production of some kind like a a, a, a game or uh, a a film or a television series you know all of those things are the streams where money is changing hands people are no longer physically buying that many records. Um, And so the small number of records that are being sold now are enough to support a niche industry of mom-and-pop record labels and and mom-and-pop stores and independent studios like ours, where we're making records one at a time for people who are making records as a passion and as as a part of their creative enterprise, rather than you know, the sort of industrial scale project where you have record labels, you know, releasing dozens of records a month and um, selling millions of records a year. That Like that scale of, of music business doesn't really exist anymore in that in those terms. And do you, do you think it's a good thing or? I mean, it. it it's the way it is. It doesn't, you know. There's no, <laughs> there's no margin in having, you know, in in being critical of it. Like, it, it doesn't. Come you know, on. It's like saying, well, the sunrise is coming up at six. You know, the sun's coming up at six thirty tomorrow. Is that is that a good time? You know, that's just when it. That's when it. You know, that's when it's going to happen. So, you don't you don't really have an opinion on things as they are. They're just that's the the state of play, and that's what you have to deal with. Don't you have a background in journalism? I'm I'm trying to do a job here. Yeah, I mean, I I studied journalism in school, and I I worked as a as a like I worked for <laughs> I wrote for fanzines and stuff like that. But I I don't really qualify don't really qualify as a journalist. Uh, well, is, is it pointless to ask you what your thoughts on streaming are? Then I, I'm curious on that. I guess, but well, there, I have a couple of I have, I have divergent thoughts on streaming. Okay, let's hear. In one sense, I think the convenience of streams is undeniable. At the moment, it's very easy for people to hear music all day without having to you know, without having to spend very much energy selecting the music. They can just sort of guide um these streaming al- algorithms to play them music and and they will hear music. It's sort of a uh it, it's a it functions the way that radio did previously where Someone else was making decisions and playing music for you, but your choices, your preferences, can shape what you're listening to now to a much, much finer degree. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas previously, you'd either listen to this radio station or that radio station, and that was it. Uh, and now you can search out playlists of the most, you know, arcane thing. And you know, with minute specificity, you can listen to very specific things that suit you uniquely and you can you know spend all day listening to a very specifically crafted playlist that caters to your tastes which is kind of incredible 
right? That was never the case. That was never really possible before. And I would you, have you can, loved it as a child, yeah. Yeah, and you can also, you can go down a rabbit hole. Like, you can, like, look for associated artists or, you know, you'll find things that have been recommended by, by other people who are into the same things that you're into. And, you know, you can, so you'll you'll find somebody who, you know, somebody who lives in a small town in in Indiana who's deep into early Jamaican <laughs> uh, blue beat music or whatever, you know, a, a kind of music that they may never have been exposed to during the physical media era, during the record era, just because there isn't likely to be a dub reggae specialty store in, in their part of the small town in Indiana or whatever. And so they would never have come across that kind of music. Whereas now, you know, in you know, in a few seconds, you can get lost in an entire world of music that you would never have been exposed to otherwise. So I think that's amazing. Um, the way the economics of those streams are set up now is, uh, you know, uh, caters to the rights holders. That is, the big corporations that hold the majority of the of the intellectual property that's being streamed, and those big record, former record companies, which are, who are now media companies, like those former record companies, get the lion's share of the benefit of the streaming income. Um, so small and independent bands are once again, you know, not benefiting from that as an income stream. But that's not really very different from when small and independent bands were not being played on the radio. Right. And when so they weren't being paid radio royalties, and their records weren't being promoted by MTV or whatever. So they had to settle for being a niche artist and they had to find their fans one at a time. Thankfully, it is now much easier to discover those fans one at a time than it has ever been. And bands can create a kind of a self-sustaining network with their audience where they're being directly supported by their audience, uh, sometimes through things like Patreon and Kickstarter and other crowdfunding sources, um, and sometimes just by the fact that they've developed a rabid audience and their audience is now faithfully buying every single thing they make, and every time they appear in public, they know that they'll, they're going to sell out. Like those, those kinds of relationships are now where most of the money changes hands for independent bands, uh, whereas previously there was some record income and some touring income and small amount of licensing income and that sort of stuff. It does seem to be, maybe, maybe there's a benefit for the independent artists, if I'm hearing you right. Not really. I mean, uh, well, in terms, of, in terms of equity, like, it's no more equitable than the major label system was <laughs> okay. in terms of the artists getting their share of the, of the money. There's a lot of money being thrown around. The money is mostly going to corporate players. For, yeah, through, exactly. But... Through deals that, were, that have no relationship to the music being played. Right, and that's same as it ever was. I think mercifully, these streaming services are doomed because at the, what they are doing is they're providing a kind of a curated experience for the listener, right? Hmm. And it seems like an inevitability that your playback hardware will be able to do that for you eventually, as computing power gets greater, and as the internet becomes more comprehensive, um, there's no reason that your phone can't find interesting music for you 
rather than you having to rely on a service to find an interesting music for you. Uh, so I think that these streaming services are doomed, and they're a sort of a transitional form between the previous gatekeeper universe where you had to physically buy a record or CD in order to hear the music and uh, a new kind of unfettered universe where you can hear anything just by wanting to. I think that's the way it's ultimately going to pan out. You're going to be able to hear anything you want to hear just by asking for it. Um, and what we have now is a kind of a, a, a kind of a throttled version of that that operates through these streaming services. There is clearly money there. I, I don't know the answer, but I mean, clearly that should be going to the artist, and it's well, not. I mean, these these really streaming <laughs> services built themselves by acquiring access to catalogs yeah. of the, the the rights holders. They acquired access to those catalogs by basically bribing those rights holders and saying, all right, we're going to give you the lion's share of this money. You know, you have equity in our company. Uh, we're going to pay you a preferential rate. Um, let us play your material. Let us play the material that you have rights to. And so the big rights holders said, okay, we'll take equity in your company and we'll take a preferential rate and then you can have access to all of our material. So then they stream all that material, and they, those people, those corporations that they may struck deals with um, get the lion's share of the payout for what would have been the artist's share of the streaming income, right? Yeah. So anyone coming late to the game, a small band that has a few albums worth of material, is going to be treated much differently than the Warner BMG music group, which has billions of, of, or let's say hundreds of millions of available tracks to play. Um, so that's why it's inequitable is that you have big players and independent players and the big players struck deals early on where they were, oh. uh, you know, making significantly more money for the same service. Um, and that's one of the reasons that it's going to collapse because independent things that are operate on a more equitable basis are going to eventually be preferred. Like the internet treats this kind of uh, limitation of access as a kind of a fault and and works to to breach it. Right. So if you can only hear a piece of music through one platform, the internet will eventually provide a way around that where you can hear it on all platforms. Yeah, you know, right? Uh, and, and you know, you can consider that clandestine if you want to, because <laughs> you know that's that's the mindset of the people who prefer the gatekeeper mentality. Um, but it's it's just a natural product of the evolution of the internet. Like that's how the internet gets better: is that it provides more access to more things for more people. Okay. Um, well, uh, one last thing before we get into in utero, you've been doing, you've been recording for a long time, but you're also, you know, considered very influential as, a uh, your band, Big Black and in other projects. But do you see yourself more as, as an engineer or producer, whichever term you prefer, or a musician? Well, my day-to-day -day profession is that I'm a recording engineer. You know, like I come to the studio every day and I make records. I made a record today. I'm going to make a record tomorrow. You know, that's what I do for a living, mm -hmm. right? Um, 
but since I was a teenager, I've been in a band, and that is my creative outlet. So um, I couldn't tell you which is more important to me. Being a recording engineer and running the studio electrical audio is my life's work, and you know that's that's what I am doing as a profession. Um, but I'm, you know, I love being in my band, and I cherish the time that we get to play. We haven't been allowed to play together very much since the pandemic, global pandemic, of right. course. But um, and this is Shellac, you know, is that right? Yeah, Shellac okay. of North America is the band that I'm in now. I've been in other bands, but Shellac has been going for 25 years or so. Um, wow, more than that. And uh, well, uh, just real quick, everything with COVID, you, you, you're healthy, your your friends and stuff. Uh, nobody came down with it, or oh no, everybody knows somebody that's got it. Every, yeah. I mean, everybody knows somebody that's died of it. That wasn't know? the best uh, question. I guess I meant uh, just kind of just how are things, man? I'm. I, <laughs> it's awful. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, yeah. it, business wise too. Did it, I assume it had some of it a uh, a hit to to your studio? Yeah, it's 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 been devastating the, to the entire band and music community like people can't play shows they can't tour you can't it's not even safe to get together to rehearse really yeah um so there's no income uh the, you know clubs are or clubs can't operate which means that there's no live venues for music it's not safe for people to congregate and we we make our living in a congregate setting <laughs> so yeah it's been absolutely devastating uh, hopefully with the vaccine rolling out, things will turn around a little bit there. And also, I know that uh, there was some legislation meant to help out like the performing industry as much because it, you touched on it. It's it's not just the, the bands. We're talking clubs, the, yeah. the, the employees that work there. Uh, shit, yeah. even rigging companies for larger tours, that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah, I mean, musicians and entertainers, make we make our livings in a crowd. And yeah. it's, just not, it's just not safe for crowds to assemble. And I think it's important that we appreciate that it isn't that we're not suffering because there is there are restrictions in place. That's not why we're suffering. We're not suffering because we're not allowed to tour or not allowed to have music, open music venues. We're suffering because there's been a, a there's a global pandemic, and our response to it as a country has been abysmal. <laughs> the the lack of a federal response has meant that we've performed more poorly than any other developed country and that that is why we are suffering we're not suffering because there are rules to prevent us from gathering the rules are are in are good the rules prevent us from killing each other yeah yeah and if anything the rules maybe if they were followed a little more stringently would get us back on the on the path to opening things up again sooner yeah, if we had bitten the bullet at the at the beginning of the pandemic and said, "Okay, everybody stays home for two months. We'll pay all your bills. Uh, just everybody stay home. Don't go anywhere. Don't go to work. Don't do anything. Don't don't interact with everybody. Anybody. Then we wouldn't have had this. Wouldn't have seen this long, terrifying growth of cases, and we wouldn't have this unbelievable death toll. Yeah. All it would have taken would have been just. You know, for us to take a couple of months off, and we, you know, a lot of people would be alive. Yeah. Um, 
Well, Steve, there's there's no eloquent way to segue out of this, so I'm just going to do a hard <laughs> turn. Uh, I, by the way, I, I, I echo your sentiments. So, um, uh, I, very well said. But uh, in uh, in utero, um, well, mm-hmm. when Nirvana obviously blew everything up and, and had a giant album mm-hmm. with Nevermind. Um, but but following that up can come with some pressure. Uh, before we get into how you got into the project, I, I gotta say, from an outsider, it just seemed like Nirvana wasn't really the type of band that really cared too much about that kind of record label. Like, oh, how are we gonna do on our second record? Did, did, I don't know how much how much you knew these guys ahead of that, but that would you agree with that? Well, I mean, they were socially from the same circles that I was from. They were, you know, they were an right. underground band and they, you know, we knew all the same people. We played at all the same clubs, you know, like we were definitely, we were from the same scene, right? So we had a lot of common experience. Um, they were in in an awkward position in that they were now the biggest band in the world and they were now sort of inexorably tied to a a big corporation that was going to be making decisions on that basis that they were a big corporation and they had a, a, a lot of money tied up in them. So uh, I didn't envy their position at all, you know. Would, uh, were you a fan of them at all? Did you know any of them personally? or I didn't know them uh, before we started working on the record. I'd, I'd never interacted with them. Well, I'd, I hadn't knowingly interacted with them. Um, it turns out I did have some interactions with Kurt, when he was younger, uh, when my bands played in Seattle, it turns out I had interacted with him, but I I didn't recall it at the yeah. time. Um, and I, yeah, so I, I I wasn't super familiar with their music. I wasn't the biggest fan of Nevermind. I mean, it was inescapable, so of course I'd heard it, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, it, it didn't it didn't strike a chord with me the way it did with a lot of other people. Um, having gotten to know the band and see them work uh my respect for them in grew tremendously mm. and i came to be become very fond of them as people and appreciate their music well let me ask you this cuz you know with your background specifically when a band kind of like you mentioned you got you you're in the same scene the same circle to a certain extent uh mm-hmm. when they <laughs> I don't know if there's a, a, a comparison other than certain bands, you know, like the local guys, Who's Could Do and Replacements, both signed major labels. That's happened before, but it has a, a band like that that just blew up and, like you said, became the biggest thing in the world. Did that seem almost, I don't know, to, to go against the grain of what the whole purpose of that of that scene was about? Well, I mean, you have to understand, nobody begrudged Nirvana their success. Mm-hmm. Like, Nirvana were a, like, they were a band that played the circuit, played all the same clubs that all the rest of us did. Right. And and everybody that knew them and everybody that interacted with them was pleased and proud and happy for them that they were, you know, becoming successful and becoming a big band. There's a political issue with aligning yourself with a, a big corporation, and that I think Nirvana themselves struggled with. Um, you know, they're... There is a cultural value to keeping things small and local and handmade. And um, when a band chooses to align itself with the corporatized mass market version of that business, um, they are making a statement of a kind. And I think that that statement is the thing that 
seems at odds with their the rest of the underground world um, because it it seemed possible at the time that you could become a big band and be influential and successful without having to become part of the corporate system you know uh, and it a, a band like Nirvana certainly had that as an as an opportunity like they could have achieved greater penetration and greater success and maintained more control of their destiny um, without getting involved in a big record label, but they chose to get involved with a big record label. So that is that is the thing that people were... that If anyone was critical of the band, that's what they were critical of. They weren't critical of their success. Okay. Their success was earned, and everyone recognized that. What they would... Have, what they might have been critical of would have been the decision to get involved in the corporate music scene uh, in preference over helping to grow the underground and the independent music scene. Uh, do you think um, that uh, kind of, I don't know, um, juxtaposition they were put in there was the reason you kind of got the call to come in to work on the follow-up? No, I think it was, I mean, I'll I'll take them at their word, and they told me that they had heard other records that I'd worked on and they liked the sound of them mm-hmm. and they knew personally knew bands that I had worked with and so they'd talked to them about working with me and they'd gotten a good report from it from them you know that I was easy to work with and that I was efficient and uh, the bands were happy with the way their records came out I, I think it's I think they were they were it was a normal decision made for normal reasons and not an extraordinary decision made for some extraordinary reason. All right, fair enough. Um, and you you ended up recording this. I don't know, not terribly far from where I'm talking to you from, uh, at uh, Cannon Falls, Minnesota, at uh, Pachyderm <clears throat> Studios. That's a that's a bit of an odd choice, even at the time, right? Well, I had worked there um, on a couple of other records, at the, and I liked the studio. The studio was acoustically really nice. Had a great sounding mixing desk, an, an old Neve console that was in really good condition still. Um, the uh, yeah, so I liked the from a technical standpoint, it was a good studio to work in because it had a the good or, a good organic natural sound at the studio, owing to the acoustics of the build and the equipment that was there. Um, it served another function by being kind of secluded. And that was that it would keep uh, drug dealers and creeps and hangers-on and gawkers away. Okay. Um, like if they had recorded in a, uh, you know, in a big city, and they had, then they would have had access to all of the uh, the social environment of the big city, and um, there, you know, Kurt had had drug problems, and everyone, you know, the people in the involved in that band and were concerned about. It risking a relapse and so it seemed wise to try to do it in a somewhat isolated environment so that it wouldn't be there wouldn't be temptations around them there wouldn't be people trying to track them down and get them involved in parties and drugs and misbehavior so so even uh, at, at you were aware of of the issues that people were concerned with with Kurt oh sure I mean, everyone was. Okay. And as far as the members of the band, was this flat out only a Kurt issue? I only ever heard reference to trying to make sure that Kurt was safe. Okay. But the the point being that, you know, you can make a record anywhere. Right. uh, And if you choose a place that has risk, 
then you are choosing the risk. If mm. you choose a place that doesn't have that risk, then you have then you're dif- protecting against that risk. I think they came across clear, um, yeah. at least from my end. Um, no, I've, I've, I've been to Cannon Falls a few times, Steve. Uh, where, where, <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine, where did you guys stay, man? There's really not much going on there. Well, the studio has accommodations built in. That's so one it's of one of those that, studios where you, you kind of live at while you record? Exactly. That's the whole, that's the, the premise of the, of, the, of the thing, is that the band would go to an, an isolated place where they would stay on site, and that way there's no chance they could get lost, you know, in, you know, there's no chance they could get waylaid between their lodgings and the studio. Um, They wouldn't go out, they wouldn't be going out looking for fun. Like, everything would be self-contained. And that that whole thing worked out great. Um, So so no fun. You guys never went to Peelers while you were in Cannon Falls? Uh, no. You're talking about the strip club, right? There's yeah. Like a strip club called Peelers. <laughs> there was. No, I don't, I'm not sure that, it's there that, anymore, but... That's not really their scene, and certainly okay. not my scene. Fair enough. I'm just like, well, that is really the only thing, uh, entertainment, well, other than maybe your redneck bars, but, uh... Uh well, how about this? Were they 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 were they pampered rock stars at this point, or were they still kind of that, uh, just this is who we are kind of thing when they walk in? Well, their their nature was that they're just normal people. Like having a conversation with them was having a conversation with a normal person. They had been enjoying their fame and their money and their celebrity, uh, uh, and they, you know, and they had been being treated very well by everyone they interacted with because they they had become super important. But it was all it was still quite novel to them. Okay, you know, like being being famous was new. Being culturally important was new. All of those things were were novel at the time. Still, so they hadn't they hadn't they hadn't been personally affected by it that much. I mean, that, that probably was a, uh, made it easier for you. Well, like I said, we had a lot in common already. Yeah. Um, I, I and the other thing is that like there were a lot of people who were sort of desperate to get involved with Nirvana. You know, like people who wanted them as clients sure. uh, for their you know their management company or like a, a, a lawyer that desperately wanted them as a client or whatever. And I made it clear to them that I didn't, I didn't want anything from them, that I was not, I wasn't trying to become an intimate of theirs. I wasn't trying to be, get into their circle, their inner circle. I just, I was an employee. I worked for them. I was there to do what they wanted me to do to make them, to help them make a record. And I think that put them at ease. Like I think they could tell that I didn't have any schemes going on. Yeah. And you took and, a I mean, flat the intention fee for the record, is that right? My intention was that they would that it would be obvious that I wasn't there to to play them in any way, that I was just I was there to make their record for them and that was it, you know. More like a peer. Yeah, but also um it, you know, I want it was clear that it was their record yeah. and that I was there to help them make their record. Uh, you know they weren't they weren't working on a record for me, right? Yeah, and 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 I'm and I'm sorry. I think I talked while you were talking there. Um, uh, but you took a flat fee for the record, right? Not a royalty, yeah. and that's yeah. that's pretty much your standard path. Yeah, that's my. I mean, I, I've talked about this at length, right? But the 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 way people like me are compensated in records. Uh, at the time, was structured in a way that benefited corporate players. Like if you're, 
if you're um, a, an administrator at a record label and you can hand out money to other people, then you become a bigger player. Then you become more important in the industry, right? Um, and if you make a deal with somebody that gives grants them a lot of money, if it's the company's money, then you could get in trouble. But you can spend the band's money without getting in trouble. Uh, and so that's the that's how that form of compensation developed was that people started making deals with other players in the music business in order to to, to make themselves more influential and more important. Mm-hmm those deals kind of inflated and escalated and the the deals involved spending other people's money and if i were being paid a royalty on those records my royalty my portion of the royalty would have come out of the share that would otherwise have gone to the band mm. so literally every dollar that i was paid in royalties would be another dollar that the band would not get and they were already in the position of having a lot of people siphoning their income. Right. So I, I, I just, from an ethical standpoint, I just, I cannot be involved in a relationship like I cannot be involved in a scheme like that. It just sounds like a racket, and I just won't do it. I never have, and I can't imagine doing it in the future. Uh, that's that's extremely principled. I mean, uh, it, it it would probably be a better world if more people approached things that way. But uh, well, I mean. I, I mean, I'll I'll play devil's not devil's advocate here, but I mean, I'll I'll point out that everyone does behave that way in everything except record production. Like in every other thing in your life, if somebody does something, some if you hire somebody to to do something for you, wedding photographers, you, yeah, you pay them once. No, no, they no, no, <laughs> they uh, they come after you. They own your photos. They uh, they they look some some do some don't, but the. The, the, the industry standard in that look it's a, it's an obscure reference i don't know where i'm going with this but yeah they basically <laughs> they, they they you pay them to show up and take pictures then they charge you to develop prints and and rather than just say well here's the thousand pictures i took that you paid me to take they want you they, they give you like little proofs and then you pick which ones you want and then you pay them again for those okay well uh, all right i'll 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 admit that I would never <laughs> that I haven't haven't had that done for me. But I mean, let's say something normal, uh, something yes. like a hammer. You know, you go get a you go get a haircut. Okay. Right? You tell the barber how you want him to cut your hair. You know, it's your, all of it's your decisions. He cuts your hair. You're happy with it. You pay him and you leave, and that's it. Um, any almost every other thing in in your life, if somebody is working to you for you at your direction, you pay them for their time, and then you're done. Yeah. And I, that just seems like a normal way to to compensate somebody. It's like, you know, we have a conversation about it and figure out what it's worth, and then you pay me that much, and we're done. You know, um, so I've just done every record that way. It mm. it just never made any sense to me to try to get involved in some elaborate scheme where they had to keep accounting to me for the rest of their fucking lives. It just it just seemed ridiculous, and I just won't do it. How many records have you have you done? I mean, you you I, how many individual records with different? <laughs> oh, I went through the list to kind of like you see if I had any kind of other like quick hitter questions I wanted to to hit. Yeah, you with. I mean, it's several, it's got to be a couple thousand. I don't yeah, know. That's amazing. I mean, uh, I've been doing it a long ass time, and I I do a lot of sessions in a given year. So yeah, I'm. It would be I would be guessing, but I, I if I did some if I did some ciphering, I could probably get within. 
an order of magnitude, <laughs> but that's about <laughs> as good as I could do. Uh, well, back to uh, Pachyderm Studios in Cannon Falls there. Now, would you have brought a lot of your own gear? Or were you using, yeah. okay, like, um, we get into some of the kind of technical geeky stuff, like, uh, specifically, what kind of things do you remember bringing in? Um, normally, what I, when I do a, stu- a session, and this is true to this day, when I do a session at an outside studio, um, I'll bring a complement of microphones with me that I know will be suitable for different purposes, stuff that I, I can't necessarily count on another studio having an inventory of. Sure. So I'll bring a parcel of microphones, maybe a dozen or more microphones, that I know will help me get through a session. Um, there's a, there are sometimes some pieces of electronic gear that make the session go smoother. Um, sometimes it's technical stuff like an, an oscilloscope for um, calibrating the tape machines or a certain piece of outboard equipment that uh, is useful under certain circumstances. But um, Pachyderm was pretty well outfitted studio from a technical standpoint. I don't think I had to bring very much outboard equipment. I, uh, I think it was basically just microphones. Um, there was one song that um, uh, Dave Grohl had brought uh, a drum kit that was pretty big. Uh, his n- normal sizes were a 24-inch bass drum, 15-inch mounted tom, and an 18-inch floor tom. Oh, boy. And there was one song, I can't remember which one, honestly, um, where he wanted to have a, a smaller, tighter sound. And I had a, a, a drum kit, a perfectly sized drum kit like that at home. Um, so I asked my friend Corey Rusk to, to go over to my house and box it up and ship it to us. Um, so we, yeah, so we, I brought this other drum kit with me. Um what else? I, I I brought a guitar. There was a guitar that Kurt had expressed interest in. It's an aluminum guitar called the Veleno, V-E-L-E-N-O. Um, it was they were a relatively obscure guitar made in the seventies, uh, made entirely out of aluminum. Hmm. Uh, and I happened to have one. Uh, and I talked to him about it on the phone, and he asked if I would bring it because he was curious about it. So I restrung it for lefty playing and brought it up. And he ended up using it on a few songs. Um, uh, but other than that, I think everything else that we, every, I think everything else that we used was was shipped out from. from the, you know, a, a semi truck arrived uh, the day before the session that had all of their backline in it, and they just picked stuff out of their, you know, you know, out of their collection of equipment that they wanted to use, and they had it shipped out. And the, and you you touched on the drums there. The, the drums do sound just amazing. And I, I know you were involved a little bit in in that that well. You were in the the first episode of Sonic Highways. Um, and and Dave Grohl specifically talked about like working with you and, and what as a drummer how much that meant to him. Uh, how do you approach like when you're especially the mixing end? I guess is where my question would come from. What what are you looking for? How do you how do you approach that? Like this is where I have this is my start baseline, and then I then I do this. Well, the mixing is not really the the way I work typically is that the you try to get the sounds together before you start recording. Mm-hmm. So you know the first playback of a take should sound pretty close to the way you want it to ultimately sound. And that was definitely the case with with Nirvana. Like they had their like their songs were well rehearsed. Uh they're all excellent musicians and you know once they had once they had made their choices like on a song by song basis Kurt might use one amplifier or another or use one guitar or another. 
use one distortion pedal or another. Like he would have very specific choices in his notebook that he that he had made already. And so once once the sounds were kind of settled, then the basic recording typically sounded very close to the finished mm-hmm. end result. So the mixing wasn't stressful. It wasn't. It's not like we were trying to craft a sound from nothing. It's you know it was basically just balancing the sounds that they had been working with over the course of the session that they were already happy with. Um, yeah, uh, the, but it, drums it can a, be a little trickier because there's so many pieces to a kit. Uh, I'm just I'm giving you a compliment that, that they're crystal clear. Pretty much everything comes across, and it, it without being dominating either. You know. Well, thank you, but I mean the the arrangements are also admirably sparse, right? Oh, fair. Typically, fair in in the there's a there's a lot of dynamic range. So, like in the heavy parts, everybody's playing full on, and it, and you know everything blends together into a band sound. Um, then in the quieter bits, there's quite a bit of space. Like Kurt will sometimes drop out almost entirely on the guitar, so there's you're just hearing the rhythm section. And then you know if you're just hearing the rhythm section, then it's dead easy to make the drums and bass mm-hmm. sound great because there's nothing covering them. Sure. You know. And then I had the luxury of working with the one of the best drummers that's ever lived. You know. Dave Grohl is a monster drummer. He's, he's highly regarded as a drummer, but I think he's underrated. Even that, you know, <laughs> I I couldn't agree more. Uh, he's uh, especially as a rock drummer. I mean, my lord, uh, you you touched on them as musicians. I think, um, like, I, I, full disclosure, not the biggest Nirvana fan here. Um, I kind of side with you as far as like my feelings on Nirvana. At least, at least a little. I heard you say there, but I, Kurt has kind of a loose, sloppy a feel to his sound that really isn't that sloppy or loose. I mean, th- them as a band are very tight. Um, yeah, I mean they they had they had been touring a lot. They were they had been playing together as a band and touring quite a lot. Um, these songs were were well rehearsed. They had done a demo session in, when they were on tour in uh, in South America. They stopped into a little studio in Rio and did demos of all of these songs. So they had worked out all the arrangements and um, there wasn't every there wasn't a lot left. You know, there there wasn't a lot. In question when they got to the studio, they just right. needed to. They were basically just executing it. So we were done fairly quickly. The days didn't seem stressful or long. They were very productive. It was a lot of material, you know, fifteen, eighteen songs, something like that. Okay. And but they, but they were, you know, more than prepared to do it, and uh, everything went very smoothly. But but would you agree that like I think it's easy to kind of dismiss Kurt as a guitar player when really it's not his style isn't something that anybody can execute. No, well I think his he has an, um, a certain sense of uh, the dynamics of the song. Like you can tell in his in his playing, like when it's meant to be sort of gentle and somber, like he plays to that emotional intensity on the guitar, and then when it's meant to be raging and explosive like he goes all the way to 11 i i I don't think there's uh, i don't think there's any you know black art to it it's just that he he was paying attention when he was putting the arrangements together and when he was writing the songs like this part is going to be low key this part is going to be big you know Mm. (laughs) i like that phrase black art um 
Uh, <laughs> well, Rolling Stone ran one of those articles, like one of those uh, 20 things you need to know about the making of this, and it said in there that you prank called Eddie Vedder from the studio. Is that accurate? <laughs> Uh, yeah, there were a few, there were a couple of prank calls that went down during the session. It was, that was one of them. Yeah. Oh, who are the other ones? Uh, Gene Simmons. Oh, from really? The band Kiss. Yeah, he w- he was trying to talk Nirvana into appearing on a Kiss tribute album, and they didn't want to do it. Yeah. Um, but they didn't they didn't particularly want to talk to Gene Simmons, so th- um, <laughs> they had me call and pretend to be Kurt. <laughs> and that was that was pretty funny. What did you say? <laughs> uh, Basically, I just sort of bumbled my way through an, an, an excuse that would allow them to not do it without having to say they didn't want to oh, be on a Kiss tribute record. You know? Oh, my Lord, uh, that is amazing. Yeah. It, I mean, yeah, they, they were very fun-loving people. I enjoyed that session. I, I, you know, they were fun <laughs> to hang around with, and they, they yeah, it was, it was entertaining. Kurt, this is Gene Simmons from Kiss. Um, what did the record label think when they heard the record? Um, after we finished the record, I went home, I got a call a few days later from Kurt and he said, yeah, everybody hates the record, (laughs) their, their management, the record company, everybody hates it. They want us to redo it. And I said, well, I think you did did a great job. I don't think you should redo it. He said, yeah, we love it. And then he called me back a few days later and he said, yeah, we want to remix a few songs. Um, and I said, well, I'll, I'll listen to it. And if I think I can do better on anything, I'll, I'm happy to fly out and help you with it. But um, if I don't think I can do better, then you're on your own. You can do what you want with it. But I, you know, so I had a copy of the master. And so I put it on. I had a studio at home and I'm, um, as discussed. And then I put my copy of the master on and I listened to it, played back. And I, I just thought it sounded great. You know, I, I felt like we'd really wrung the sponge as the way I would have described it at the time. Like, I felt like we got the most out of everything and that it sounded terrific. So um, next time I spoke to Kurt, I said, look, I don't I don't think I can do any better. I think all this stuff sounds fantastic. And if you want to redo some stuff, you have my blessing. I'm, you know, I'm not going to be a dick about anything. Just uh, I, I just feel like you really did a great job and you should be proud of yourselves. And so they ended up. Doing, making some small adjustments to a couple of songs, like added some backing vocals to one song, and I can't remember what the other little adjustments were. But they ended up remixing a couple of songs. Um, but it, the bulk of the album, like if you know, uh, the bulk of the album is essentially the same as it was when it, when we finished at Can at the Pachyderm, you know. Oh, okay. And the record that made and I said this at the time the record that made its way into the stores is the record that Nirvana wanted people to hear and it's their record and they get to make those decisions and I you know so I have no gripe with Nirvana oh yeah I know I think that's clear um now they did on the 20th anniversary expanded edition do one of one of the the bonus discs was the Steve Albini mix was that yeah you, that was that the original mix that you were just telling about, or did you actually go back in and yeah. do like a like a remaster kind of thing? Everything that was on that deluxe edition was all the original material, like the original mixes that were done in, at Pachyderm, and then the remixes that were done that were on the final sequence of the album. That was all, you know, all of that was from the original masters. The, uh, it was just remastered for better sound quality, um, and I'm very pleased with the way that record came out. I think you know, I they let. Uh, Chris Novoselic was kind of overseeing that for, okay. for the band, and um, he was able to get the the record label to cooperate with him and to do it, 
you know, start to finish to do it for the absolute pinnacle and sound quality. It was all um, original masters. They didn't have to use any production masters or copies for anything. It was a full analog master. That is, the whole LP mastering was all done directly from the original master tapes. Um, it was all cut into metal. That is, instead of being a lacquer cut, they, they used the DMM process, which is a slightly better sound quality. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it was, you know, pressed as 12-inch 45s rather than a single 33 and a third uh, LP, and that improved the sound quality as well. Yeah, I, I think they they really did a, just did a phenomenal job on that deluxe reissue. Um, like I don't I don't know how to make a better record, better sounding record. Just on a technical level, they did everything exactly the, the best possible way. Cool. Well, I mean that's that's refreshing to hear. But uh, walking you back a little bit, so this entire thing was mixed while you guys were all still in Cannon Falls. Yeah. Wow. And, so, I mean the stuff that's that part I of the two on, weeks yeah. of recording. Then, I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, like uh, that that was part of the two weeks you guys spent there. Yeah, I think the whole thing was done in like twelve days. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, do you happen to remember what the budget for the record would have been? I don't remember. I don't. Um, I mean, I could work it out. I'm guessing you, know, you came got, in under budget, right? I don't think there was ever a stipulated budget. I think they just said, "Well, let's spend whatever whatever it costs. Okay. This is how we're going to do it, They're and whatever enough. that is." That, you know, that I don't. Sense. I don't think they were ever stipulated. Let's not spend more than X on it. You know. Well, how about this? Uh, do you have any favorite uh, songs on the album? I'll, I'm. I'll be honest. I'm not that good with song titles. Hmm. Um, I got it in front of me if you want me to hammer specific. down them, but... <laughs> yeah. Um, well, how about this? What, I, rem- what, I, remember, what? I, remember, I remember at the time, I really liked the way the the band dynamic and the drumming worked together in the song Milk It or Milkmaid, whatever. I don't remember yeah, what Milk the final it. title was. Yep. Yeah, there's a, there's a kind of a brooding quality to the verses, and then the the choruses really blew up in a really intense way. I thought that was I thought that song came out really great. Any special, uh, uh, I don't know, anecdotes or stories from the recording sessions? I mean, you did share that awesome tale of prank calling Gene Simmons. Is anything else from that time that sticks out? <laughs> yeah, I don't really, I can't really think of any. I didn't submit these questions in in writing ahead of time. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not more prepared with an anecdote for you. No, that's sorry. okay. How about how about just a memory of Kurt? Any anything special there? Um, I remember when his daughter arrived. He was he just he was just beaming in her presence. Like he, I, I don't think I've ever seen a person happier about anything than him just playing with his daughter. Do you stay in contact? And now it sounds like you worked with Chris on the uh, on the the, um, the the deluxe edition of this. But uh, do you stay in touch with him or Dave at all? I know you were on the Sonic Highways thing, but beyond that, do you guys uh, still uh, I don't know talk once in a while? Yeah, yeah, once in a while, like I'll get a text message from Dave when he sees something that reminds him of me, and he'll or like uh, you know, yeah. I mean, we're 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 friendly. I'm. I've developed my my friendship with <laughs> Dave and Chris has kind of extended over a long period of time, and it's developed more to more than it was at the time. At the time, we were just working together, and I think uh, you know, and I grew to admire and appreciate them more over the long arc of time since then. 
Yeah, well, Dave said in that uh, in that episode that you you have a reputation of that of a cynical prick. Do you feel that's a a, a fair statement? Uh, you know, that's I don't particularly care what other people think of me. Yeah. So uh, that kind of cynicism. I don't. I don't particularly. I don't really. I don't feel like a cynic. I feel actually like a quite positive person, but I also understand how other people's perspective is going to be different from mine, and I'm I'm not going to get bent out of shape about it. Uh, I use a term, and maybe maybe you'll embrace this or you won't, but I, I call it Minnesota snark. Uh, and it's a climate thing, as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, it seems like a lot of the bands, like from here, and even like these Seattle bands, they kind of like embrace that kind of like. Like I would agree, we're all happy people, but uh, there is <laughs> a little bit of snark to everything we do. But I'm not going to take offense one way or another. Fair enough. Uh, how about the track they recorded? Something or nothing? Something uh, for nothing? Were you involved in? To your knowledge, did they have that pre-written before they got to your studio, or was that written while in Chicago? Uh. I'm the wrong person to ask about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't work on that session. I was just here. Sure. Yeah. Um, no, I know it was. Yeah. Uh, they were bringing Butch along and and, and using the yeah. studio in each city. But I was just curious. Uh, I would like to mention this though. Uh, you you did a record recently with a local H Lifers that landed on uh, the uh, our show's uh, year end top ten list for what that's worth. Oh, cool. I, I can't remember where, where it came in. It was in the in the middle there somewhere. I was a little surprised to see you were actually um were, you worked as the, the, your list is like an assistant engineer or something like that on the Jimmy Page and Robert Plant album Walking into Clarksville. Uh, wh- yeah, I was the principal engineer for that whole record. Yeah. What what uh I mean that's good rock royalty. That was a pretty, I mean I know you worked with Nirvana, but you know that you at, when you worked with Nirvana, they were kind of fresh and current. And it, this is almost like the Beatles walking into you, in, into a room with. Yeah, I mean it's fairly intimidating working with somebody like <laughs> Jimmy Page and Robert Plant. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, you realize there that you know you're. You're working with people who have every reason to expect the absolute best performance from everyone they work with, and so it's, a, it's somewhat intimidating to be in that position. I'm I'm pleased that I was able to measure up, you know. Right on. Um, uh, a little jealous of you there, but uh, and you're a pretty good poker player, it turns out. Well, I do my best. Yeah. <laughs> have you won more than you lost as far as money? We don't have to get in specifics. Uh, yeah, if you if you if you lose more than you win, then you're not a winner. <laughs> then you haven't won anything. Yeah. Uh, tell it to our quarterback. Um, oh, and one last little kind of small nugget is it is it do you is this true? I, I came across this uh, getting ready for this that you have a food blog. I wasn't able to find it or, or check it out today. Um, I used to about ten years ago. I was running. I was doing a food blog. Just just keeping a, a sort of a running diary of everything I was making from my wife, Heather. Um, it hasn't been active for a long time. Okay. It got sort of overrun with spam bots and, <laughs> uh, it just got to be too much of a nuisance. And are you a foodie? Yeah, but there was for, for a couple of years there, I, I, I worked on it pretty regularly. Are, are you, are you... Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't consider myself a foodie. I'm a, I'm a serious amateur cook. I like to cook. Mm. I cook every day if I can. Mm, nice. What's uh? What is there a go-to dish? Uh, no. I mean, I cook a lot of Italian food just because that's you know I I learned to cook watching my mom and uh, 
you know, we're an Italian family, so I I cook a lot of pastas and things like that. Uh, that's a that's a big that's a regular, but um, yeah, I, the, I've been on a kind of a weird been on kind of a weird soup kick lately where I've been making <laughs> a lot nice. of soups. I made a pozole the other day. Pozole is a hominy stew. Um, it's Mexican in origin, but yeah. Huh. I made a I made a Tuscan pork uh, stew last night. Uh, slow cooked it, but anyway, uh, <laughs> we'll get up. Congratulations! Thank you, thank you very much. Yes, it turned out okay. Steve, I enjoyed this very much. I I hope I was gracious and patient, and uh, and I and I really hope I came across prepared because uh, you know you're you're a pretty big deal. <laughs> well, thank you. That's very flattering. This is uh, Jason Bakken calling for Steve Albini. This is he to whom you speak. At Progressive, we know there's nothing like the feeling of riding your motorcycle with your buddies on the open road. It's a potent cocktail of thrills, laughter, and pure adrenaline. A feeling that would be impossible to recreate on the radio. Until now. Hit it, sound effects guy. I'm real proud of you, son. (laughs) Well, that was terrible. Our apologies for even trying. Quote with Progressive and see if you could save with America's number one motorcycle insurer. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.